Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to The Price of Football. Still, I understand the number one podcast in Armenian. That's two weeks running, so that's fantastic. So obviously my pronunciation of hello in Armenian last week worked a treat. Uh, this is the pod that looks at the money behind the beautiful game. I'm Kevin Day and I'm joined, of course, by football finance expert and the one you're all here for, to be honest, Kira Maguire. Uh, once again, we've added music. Fantastic. Yeah. Yep. So, Kieran, do you want to know what's coming up on the on the pod? Oh, yes, please. Well, yes. You will do, because I know how much more research you do than I. <laughs> um, I, I. We're finally getting around to a hot topic for our listeners this week, stadium sales. So, a lot of clubs have sold or mortgaged theirs recently, not all of them to themselves. Uh, so, we'll be asking why they do that and what are the implications. Plus, we got that finally getting around to that discussion about supporter-owned clubs. We talked a little bit last week about Partick Fissel. We're going to talk about it more this week. And the Youth Development Scheme, a.k.a. EPPP. And, of course, your questions. It is EPPP. It is EPPP. I haven't put an extra P in. No, no. Have you had a good week? I've I've had a good week. Yeah, yeah, very good. More small print? Oh, I've been going through it with a (laughs) fine-tooth comb, as always. (laughs) I suspect you genuinely enjoy it, don't you? Um, Now, stadium sales. We've been asked a lot about stadium sales recently. And you've introduced it it's surprising how many topics stadiums uh, the venn diagram of other football finance topics it's you know the football stadium sales are in the middle of it because a lot of clubs are doing it uh Sheffield wednesday coventry northampton derby brighton there's a lot of things going on with so are these all for the same reasons are, are clubs selling the stadiums for the same reasons no i, I think if you look historically um yeah a, a football club is is, is part of our heartbeat. You know, as you grow up as a fan, yeah, you've got all of those memories associated with the football club. And, and therefore, it's, it's, a, it's a community asset. It's something which you would hope would be protected or, if it does disappear, would be replaced by something better. Who would protect it, though? Well, Leg- you mean you're talking about legally? or you talk- it, I mean, what, morally, why- morally, you're absolutely right. But I'm just wondering, legally, who would that job fall to? If, if football clubs want to... Uh, be, be associated with the football association if they want to play in the FA Cup if they want to um, be be involved on, on a regular basis in these leagues why isn't somebody turning around and saying that all transactions involving clubs mortgages sales and so on those have to be scrutinised and approved at, at FA level because as we know they're not well exactly <laughs> but, but, yeah. and that's that's indicative of the fact that yeah. what is the purpose of the FA and it appears to be well nobody's actually quite sure yeah. it appears to be you know, uh, business class trips to uh, to foreign shores whenever England play away well, well, also it does mean that somebody from the Cambridgeshire FA gets a jolly old day out to the FA Cup every season despite not having supported any of the teams involved that's that's right. a question for another pod <laughs> um, so, so if, if you then say well what is the biggest opportunity for somebody to make money out of a football club? It would often be connected with the stadium. Now, if I go back to um, uh, the Brighton situation in the, in the 1990s, weird owners who sold our ground for £7 million. And we thought, well, we're not quite sure how much it's worth, but you know, pro- 
land prices in, in yeah, Brighton it, Hove. It's location. Was, it, it was, that's what the value is. There, that's right. And it? Yeah. it was in Hove. Yeah, Hove, 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 is, Hove is where the posh people Absolutely, used to live. Yeah. Um, well, Brighton's where the posh people. They're all posh now. We know that. Although I've been told by one particular Palace fan that we shouldn't be talking about the Palace Brighton situation, so let's not let's not right. let's not delve into the fact that Brighton fans are all posh, and you've all got Labradors. I've got, I've got a setter. Absolutely. Um, within a few months, the ground was resold for £27 million. Resold? Resold to... Um, uh, so who bought it originally? It, it was sold to uh, a property developer, okay, who fine. then sold it on. Right. To, it then became Toys R Us. Um, and appropriate. Exactly. Maybe, <laughs> a plastic, maybe a plastic bag kit. Should have been a Tesco, surely. Anyway. <laughs> So it sold within for twenty seven million pounds within a year. Now, then that's that's an awful lot of profit being made awfully quickly. Was it sold too cheaply originally? Has somebody's made a lot of money very very quickly? So that that's one particular issue. If we take a look at West Ham and Upton Park, now is, I, 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 is it Upton Park or is it the bowling ground? I can... it, it, well, it, most West Ham fans didn't get carried away about, but I'm, I'm pleased you mentioned this because this was going to be one of my next questions because I didn't know this until you what you were about to tell me. Because like many football fans, the London Stadium move seems very iffy, and there's a lot of football fans who think West Ham got a very good deal. And I used to love going to Upton Park forward slash the bowling ground. It was a great place to go and watch football, even as an away fan. I mean, it's evening games at the bowling ground, the hairs on the back of your neck would go up. So I'm really upset, really upset and angry by what you're about to tell me. Right. Um, West Ham United, or WH Holding, yeah. is their holding company, they, they owned the ground. Um, the ground was, was sold um, for £40 million. Uh, to a company called Bowling Phoenix. And if, and if you take a look at Karen Brady's statements at the time, it was, we sold it to this company. We could have got a little bit more money elsewhere, but uh, we, we know that the, these new owners, they're going to preserve the heritage of the club. And it all, it all came across, oh, OK, yeah, we have fair play. You know, David Gold, David Sullivan, yeah, you, 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 you're, you're supporting the local environment. You, you're talking, supporting the local community. Very impressive. And so it sold to this company called Bowling Phoenix, which hadn't existed. Okay? This company just sprung up from nowhere. So it was set up. It was set to up do purely for this transaction. So if you go into the small print of their accounts, which, as we know, I like to do, yeah. there, there was the, the previous year it had zero sales, zero anything. Should that ring alarm bells? You, you know, this is not my world. Should, would that would that normally be something to be suspicious about in a brand new company? Um, you, you'd ask yourself where have they, where have they got their funding from? Right. Yeah, because you and I just can't set up a company and write out a check for forty million pounds because. We need forty million pounds of funding, so so that seemed very strange, and no connection to the club, though. As far as we no know. connection to the club, right. if, if, I've, I've been through the list of directors, right. couldn't see anything. I think one of the directors, he was the brother-in-law of one of the directors at Spurs. That was sort of a very tenuous football right. collection, um, and then immediately it was sold for sixty million pounds to Barretts. and now there is a development of I think about eight hundred houses where where the ground used to be. Sorry, so they didn't do anything. So this initial company didn't build anything. Didn't build anything. They just that, they bought it for forty million, and they sold it for sixty million, practically straight away. So these people have just made twenty million quid. Yeah, out of nothing. Out out of well, either they persuaded David Gold and David Sullivan, who you know, and and remember, yeah, you know, most most people associate Gold and Sullivan with 
with one-handed magazines but yeah. but actually <laughs> yeah. it's that they are pretty clever guys they've, they've made an awful lot of money from property so i I'm, I'm, i was surprised that they they either sold it at too high a price or too low a price and, and allowed that allowed somebody else to make 20 million pounds on the back of that is this i mean is this common i mean does this happen in other business that you set up a business and you sell it even though it's done nothing yeah, if if, if but they you, own, but they did, so this new company own now owned the land that the Upton Park is that's on. That's right, and then it immediately sold it to Barrett's. Barrett's knocked down the stadium, and they built. Uh, they built. I think it's eight hundred and thirty-eight. And uh, does this new company exist anymore? It, it exists in the sense that it's legally there. It's had no transaction since the sale of the stadium. It then paid out. It paid out a dividend of around about thirteen million pounds to the shareholders. It paid a hell of a lot. Yeah, paid about seven million pounds on tax on the deal, and then effectively it's, it's just disappeared. That's. I'm reluctant to say it out loud for legal reasons, but it doesn't seem right, does it? And have, is, I've not been to the the housing development. Is it sympathetic? Do we know? Does it? I, I think there is some social housing there. But that's that's down to Barrett's. I think uh, it would be interesting to see what West Ham fans thought of it. Uh, Ayrton Park used to be that used to be a place to visit for for a, a South London boy yeah. <laughs> back in the day. But at least the where I've been to where the houses are now, the development, and at least they've there is a nod to the history because. There's a little plaque where the penalty spot was, where the South Korean guy scored, the North Korean guy scored the penalty from. So, where the goals were is marked out. So it's kind of you you know that you're at at somewhere where a football ground used to be. So you would hope at the bowling ground. But I don't think we can leave West Ham without touching on not just the slightly shady situation that you described about leaving Upton Park, but the situation, the circumstances in which they gained the London Stadium, which has been. Very unpopular for most West Ham fans, for most away fans. They'll never play a game on Boxing Day again at home because of the Westfield Shopping Centre, so on and so forth. It feels like it's not their ground except on every second Saturday. Have did they? Is that a win-win situation for West Ham? Did they pull a fast one on 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 London and the Mayor of London? There was that was that just good business on their part, or were they did they outflank people who were slightly naive business-wise? I think it was superb negotiation by West Ham. Right. Um, I think if you look at the rent that they're paying, one and a half million pounds yeah. in a stadium that costs seven hundred million. You do that on a percentage basis. Yes, it's they, they've got a, they've got a fantastic deal in an area that's been regenerated almost on a daily basis. You go there each because where studios I'm working in five hundred yards from the west from the London Stadium, and each week there's something there's something new. So it's an area that's going to be it's going to be worth that rent. In three years' time, we'd be even more ridiculous. Yeah. So, th- so they've they've done extremely well, and from a West Ham fan, yeah, fr- from a business point of view, you've got to give credit to the owners. From what we, yeah, our romantic notion of football, of steep terraces being close to the players, we both know that that's not the case. Mm. Uh, I, I've been to to the new stadium, um, and it was it was yeah. Bring your bring your opera glasses. It's, it's yes, I know. Um, and, and that that took it away. There is a very toxic relationship which has waxed and waned since uh, since the club moved to the London Stadium. I think the, a lot of the fans feel, and, and I'm in some of the, the some of the fan groups are are in contact with me, asking me for more details about oh, the numbers and so on. Okay. Um, and I think the the thing which was most shocking was that moving from Upton Park to 
to the London Stadium, which was an increase in capacity from around about 35,000 to 57,000. It's now up to 60. You, they thought, well, lots more money coming in, yeah. lots more money for players, lots more money for wages. In the first year of the move, an extra two million quid. Right. Now, if you think that for every position in the Premier League, yeah. you get an extra two, you know, yeah. going from 13th to 12th, an extra 12, two million quid. Yeah. Is two million pounds a year better off? Yeah. Is that worth all the memories disappearing, yeah. all the history and the heritage, all of those people are, who have now lost their jobs? You know, the, we're not getting too too romantic about you know, about the jelly deal shops. About Je- you know, uh, you know, because yeah. I I remember the first football match I ever went to, which was, you know my uncle was a West Ham fan. He took me at the age of nine, and I just remember this incredible experience. Absolutely, what an amazing ground! What a yeah. fantastic atmosphere! People have lost jobs. People have lost their memories for something which is soulless. Well, I mean, that's a beautiful description because they have lost completely lost the goodwill of the fans. Some of the most loyal fans in 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 football, and and even as a Palace fan and a proud son of South London, you know, for me, you'd say to people, if you want to get the London experience, go to West Ham. Not, not. But, but what's interesting is a friend of mine, is a West Ham season ticket holder, who says on a ga- on a game by game basis, you never have the same people around you. So clearly, either season ticket holders aren't turning up every week, or the club are selling the season tickets on a weekly basis to tourists. Or, and his other point is the white seats really show up when people leave early, as many of them are doing. Yeah. And and the club simply don't they don't play as well as there. It's not it's not their home anymore. But how many? Because I always thought there was way too many. I mean, thirty five thousand seemed right for West Ham. That's you know, so it always seemed too big a move. Fifty an extra twenty two thousand fans. You always thought was very very optimistic, even though it's in the east of the, the London. It's towards Essex, so a lot of these people presumably are tourists, are people who are going to one game in their trip to London, and, and spending money at the club at the same day. Or well, th- this this is the really weird thing about West Ham. You know, the, when when the capacity of the ground was fifty seven thousand, they actually had fifty two thousand season tickets. Did they? Oh, and okay. again, you know. David Golden, David Sullivan, they come in for a lot of stick. The, the prices were pretty, very low right. you know, by, by oh, Premier League okay. standards. So, okay. so that could be a part of the reason why they didn't get as the, 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 big, the big increase that they were expecting. Um, if you compare that to Liverpool, why, why did Liverpool make a fortune from match day? It's because Liverpool have got a capacity of 54,000 at Anfield, but they only sell 26,000 season tickets. Oh, so therefore. Oh, okay. Now, last week, I don't know whether you saw this, but Liverpool or Liverpool tickets was trending on Twitter. Yes, I didn't see it, but you told me about it via one of your interesting emails. <laughs> <laughs> so, I investigated further. I didn't get to the end of it here. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay. Um, and the reason why this was trending is is that Liverpool effectively sell sell match day tickets twice a year. So there's an almighty bun fight. For tickets, so this is a deliberate policy because Liverpool could sell fifty-four thousand season tickets easily. Oh, yeah. So this is a deliberate policy that only half the capacity is kept for season ticket holders. That's right. Which already is wrong, as far as I'm concerned. Because who's going to be buying? So these are for people that are going to get into two or three matches a year. So what are they going to be doing? Well, first of all, if, if whilst there is a lot of criticism about prices of tickets. I, I would say that most season ticket prices are, they're not cheap, 
but I work out my my match by match ticket price. It's 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 reasonable when I when I compare that to the cost of going to a gig or yeah, cost of going and, out for a and, meal. And most clubs in the Premier League, you have instalment plans, and yeah, so you're not you're not necessarily laying out six hundred, twelve hundred, eighteen hundred. That's right. It's, yeah, it's yeah. it's it's less than you could be paying for your your TV and broadband. Yeah, to go and watch your club and or for your Brighton fans, your opera or your yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Um, I live near Glind, by the way. Of course you do. <laughs> Where else would you walk the setter? <laughs> Um, so, how how can the club make more money from from the fans? If you sell more match day tickets, match day ticket prices are much higher than season ticket prices. Of course, of course. And if you're going to a match once or twice a season, you're going to go to Anfield, or you're going to go to Old Trafford, or wherever it's going to be. You're going to go into the mega store, and you're going to spend every last penny that you've got. So this is. Clever marketing. This is business strategy. This, yeah, this is all the type of nonsense I teach on an MBA course. Yeah, how how do you how do you extract the most money out of your punters? But as an old-fashioned football fan, you're going. Oh. I I since well, I know from experience because one of my favourite match of the day two pieces was travelling from Oslo to Anfield with some Norwegian fans. Yeah, who I was meant to meet at lunchtime before the game, but they got barred from the pub. <laughs> They'd only been there since eleven o'clock, but they were they were great. But they they go four times a year, and one of them gets so drunk that he buys a, a shirt at the end of the game, and he gets the result and all the scorers printed on the back of the shirt. And they must because they were talking about how it, wages in Norway are quite high. Mm-hmm. They've got a lot of disposable income. One of them saying they probably spend a grand each during the match day experience, eight hundred quid of which is round Liverpool mm-hmm. and in, which in the ground, which yeah, is which yeah, yeah. is which is great. But that begs it. So, so how do these fans get these tickets? Are they in a ballot? Are they? They're, so they're you've got to ballot. be a member. So presumably you've got to be members. And is it the whole point scheme for each game? You well, no. It, it's uh, if if you if you're a member of the um, if you're a member of of the scheme, um, I think for four matches. I think if it's uh, for Everton, Manchester United. Um, you know, and a couple of other Chelsea and so on. For four matches, it is on a sort of a, on a points basis. Right. But the rest of it's a free for all. But in order to be able to apply for tickets, you've got to buy into the membership scheme, and I think it's twenty seven pounds. And that what what does that twenty seven pounds give you? That gives you the right to queue online That's for right. tickets with no guarantee of getting a ticket even once a season. Good, good for cash generation. How much are the club making out of this then? How many people have signed up to this scheme? Well, there were over a hundred thousand people queuing um, last week uh, because, it, again, yeah, you know, I only picked it up because I was looking at Twitter at the time. For twenty-six thousand tickets. For twenty-six thousand tickets, yeah. So that's seventy-four thousand people paying twenty-seven quid yep. who aren't getting a ticket. Yep. That, do you know what disappoints me most about that? Apart from everything, is that Liverpool are a club who sell themselves at, on the special relationship. With the fans, I mean Liverpool. You 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 think of Liverpool, you think of fans. Everyone thinks of the, so, but that's that's not a good way to treat fans, is it? I mean, or is it is it a fairer way? Because if you if it's just fifty six thousand season ticket holders and the rest of the world who love Liverpool never get a chance to go, you, you can see it from both points of view. Right. And if if you do talk to somebody who's got a season ticket at Anfield, they say, "Oh, I'm I'm perfectly happy." Oh, okay, uh, and fine, also, yeah. if you think about all this extra money comes in into the club that allowed us to play. So yeah, we signed Mo Salah, we signed okay, Sane, we've enough. signed Virgil fair van Dijk. Enough, yeah. The people who are not in the scheme, 
we we are a bit elitist as fans. Yeah, as a season ticket holder, yeah, no, I, I, enough, I consider yeah. myself to be slightly superior to a to yeah, a day tripper, yeah, to a away, football tourist. All, every away fan considers themselves superior to the home fan. Absolutely. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, so you know, it, you could argue it's sound business sense. But I want to, before we get on to other reasons for selling stadium, i.e., to yourself, alarm bells. Or so many stories we hear of clubs in financial trouble start along the lines with, to paraphrase Casablanca, Mr. I sold a stadium once. And that seems to be where so many clubs' problems go and that they release. At Palace, we had an issue for a long time because we didn't own the freehold to the ground, so you couldn't do anything. But that's a club's biggest asset. Well, I suppose players are the biggest asset, but the stadium is a club's biggest asset by far. And once you buy a club and get rid of that, you're in normally the start of a rocky road, isn't it? Yeah, because with, with a player, you, you can replace a player with somebody from the youth team uh, at zero course, cost. If you sell your stadium, you've got a problem. So look what's happened to Coventry City. You know, I, I, I've been to Highfield Road, you've probably uh, been to Highfield Road, yes, long, yes. long time ago, yeah. kids. Um, but the new stadium, it was great when it first came along, um, but it wasn't owned by the club. The club's then been taken over by, by a hedge fund in the Cayman Islands called Sisu. Mm. Now, Sisu have been trying to buy the stadium. They've been using silver-tongued lawyers to try to force the council to sell it to them at a relative, well, I suspect at a very low price, and then sell it on with with the rest of so the Remind, was the stadium, the new place, always owned by the council? Yeah, I think it was owned by the council, right. but there, there was a good relationship. Um, and... Sisu, what, Sisu bought Coventry City. Coventry City were in problems about 2007. I think Ray Ransom was involved at yeah. one stage and so on. Um, Sisu bought the club. They underwrote the losses for a little while and they were trying to persuade uh, Coventry City Council to, to sell on the ground um, for what looked like a knockdown price. The ground was then sold um, to, to other people and Coventry, as a result of falling out with the landlords are now playing their games in Birmingham. Now, that's that's not good. It's not good for Coventry City fans. Um, Co- Birmingham will make a bit of money out of it. Yeah. It's not good for away fans as well, because you're going to... Hey, is it a new ground? Is it not a new ground? Yeah, yeah. Um, who's making all the money from, from the, the merchandise? Who's making all the money from refreshments and so on? That's not going to Coventry City. So it means that the manager's got a problem. He's got a lower budget and so on. It's such a dispiriting story, Coventry, isn't it? Because you've... I always one of those clubs. I like you. I go to Highfield Road. There's a, I will get misty eyed. There's a pub called the Rocket, between the ground and the station. That was a brilliant away fans pub. It was, it and also was, when when they won the FA Cup, I think uh, everybody that day, Keith Houchins, anybody uh, that was there who watched that at the time, when the FA Cup used to be such a yeah, big annual yeah. experience. What a goal! What a match! Well, yeah. uh, but they were they were a Premier League club, and it, I mean it, it, it's like Charlton, I suppose. It's a salutary lesson to not go chasing what you. You know, to be careful, you know, it's, we have this at Palace. You know, surviving the Premier League is, is enough of an ambition for most people, because you see when a club like Coventry or Charlton decides that they should be in Europe, and they start spending money to 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 do that, and then they fall out of the Premier League and they start spending money to get back in, it can be a long rocky road back financially, can't it? Yeah, yeah, and and there's just too many of these stories in relation to to the stadium so we've spoken about Bury at length yeah, um, yeah. but there's something similar has happened at Northampton town right the Northampton owners went to the local council and they said um, we want to expand the stadium um, and the council said okay um, can we help yeah so the owner said we'd like to borrow ten and a half million pounds council wrote me out a check for from 10 the and council a half, from the council council wrote me out a check the owners disappeared 
oh, okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> right, okay. Along, was, along, <laughs> along with the money. <laughs> I thought there might be something else after that. No, that was it. That's it. That it. Yeah, Bush. I've never heard... Is that is that common for councils to help like that? I mean, that's a spectacular amount of money for a it's, council. Well, the council, ca- ca- yeah, the councils aren't going to put it, and the, yeah, they're not going to be talking about it too loudly. But it's uh, yeah, it's an ongoing issue. So, selling state is, is is one thing. Yeah, and it seems that football owners are not particularly savvy about selling stadiums. But then we have the issue recently with Sheffield Wednesday and Derby, and I know Sheffield Wednesday fans. The week we started this pod. Sheffield Wednesday fans were a little bit worried because it seemed that the, the EFL were taking it more seriously than they thought. And since then, the EFL have taken steps, and there, there are potential sanctions. So, for those of you, for those who, people listening who aren't au fait with the story, explain what Sheffield Wednesday wanted to sell. Who Sheffield Wednesday wanted to sell the stadium to, essentially? Right. Um, Sheffield Wednesday's owner is, is a Thai guy. He's uh, he's from a tuna background. Um, that's where his family fish, made the money. Fish, yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, and he's called Mr. Chansiri. Um, he has underwritten the losses, like all all the owners do in in the championship. It is, it is very much it's a it's, it's a vanity project. Um, but Sheffield Wednesday were going to make uh, an FFP loss. Or far in excess of the thirty nine million pounds that's allowed. Financial fair play. Financial yeah, fair yeah, play yeah, loss. Yeah. Um, so. One of the ways you can get around that, and nobody knows why why the rules have been changed that to allow the clubs to do this, was was is to sell the stadium. And if you sell the stadium to a third party, as we've seen in relation to West Ham, you know, you can still be a profit. But somebody else potentially can make a lot more money. But what's happened in in relation to um, Hillsborough that it was sold for sixty million pounds. Um, to a company called Sheffield 3 Limited, also owned by Mr. Chansiri. Um, and this was in the in the 2018 accounts. The problem was that if you go to the land registry, the purchase of Hillsborough wasn't in the land registry until July 2019. Sheffield 3 Limited didn't exist until July 2019. Right. And... Sheffield Wednesday didn't receive any cash from the sale. Look at the small print. They're going to receive eight amounts of seven and a half million pounds spread over eight years. Now, I don't know, have you, have you sold your house? Have you, have you moved house? You know, well, the one thing you do is you make sure you get the cash. Yes. Um, so Sheffield... I'll, che- I'll check that that happened. <laughs> <laughs> I'll ask Mrs. Day whether we did actually get... Yes. Um, so it, it seems very odd if you're involved in in a in a land transaction of that nature why has the other party not paid so the accusation or the suspicion is that sheffield sheffield wednesday um didn't realize the extent to which they were in a financial fair play pickle and the the cynics are saying this transaction was engineered a few months later and has been brought forwards now we don't know exactly the nature of the charges from the the EFL, but they've said you know, we've been having ongoing discussions with the club, and there are some pieces of paperwork that we're not happy with. So, I think the issues are: a is is, 50, is sixty million quid an appropriate price for Hillsborough? I've got no idea. Right, you've yeah, got no yeah, idea. Yeah, we're, f- we're not surveyors. Yeah, fair point. And, and, I've, and I've also. I phoned up some some big hitting surveyors, yeah. um, and they said we couldn't tell you either. It, it's very difficult. Oh, really? It's it's a bit how how do you value um, 
how, how do you value a painting? Yeah, if, you, if you've got a Picasso, what is it worth? No, nobody knows. Well, the cliche is it's, it's worth as much as somebody will pay for it, I suppose. That, isn't that's it? right. It's, it's, yeah. And, and if, if I'm trying to sell it to you, I'm trying to get as high a price as possible. Yeah, You're trying to pay as yeah. low a price as possible. If I'm selling it to me, and effectively, what, what am I doing? I'm taking £60 million from bank account A yeah. and transferring it to bank account B. Yeah. So I'm not any better or worse off but Sheffield Wednesday have satisfied financial fair play as a result of that. So that is the nature of the criticism. I'm, I'm surprised that there isn't some kind of... You'd imagine that surveyors would have some kind of table, that, that at least with a baseline. It's like an estate agent will walk into a house in London, for example, and will know you know, it's at least £250,000, yep. and each bedroom adds this. So you'd imagine that they, you know, the, the square footage of Hillsborough plus the surrounding, you'd think they would... I'm but, surprised they've got no indication at all. Well, of it's, they, it's, they, they use something called the red book. So the first thing they say right. is, is a bit like what, what you've just said. If if I am buying a, a house in Walthamstow in London, in a particular road, you look to see, well, what are the other houses in Walthamstow in that road oh, oh, gone for? Fine, so you can't compare but, with football grounds. But with the football grounds, yeah, yes, yes, okay. the nearest ground that's been sold is Derby County. That's also been sold to a guy who happens to be the owner of the club. Well, that brings us handily on to that, that next question. Because what are the before we talk about Derby, what are the ramifications for... Sheffield Wednesday. What are the potential threats for the EFL, and does that mean that Derby will be having second thoughts about doing the same thing themselves? Well, Derby have done. They've already done it. They've already done they've, it. They've already oh, done oh, it. Right. Okay. Um, I think the the potential issues are a the 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 best case scenario for Sheffield Wednesday is the EFL turn around and say your paperwork's rubbish. You know, get your house in order. It's a bit like when you know, if you get the tax man coming to you and say, "Well, Kevin, you've you've been claiming some expenses. Have you got the receipts?" So you know, it's it's something. Yes and no is, <laughs> is the answer to both those questions. Unfortunately, yeah. Um, so it it could be that they say you really need to get your house in order. It, it's pretty shabby for right. a, a multi-million pound business, and it goes no further. Right. So so that would be ideal scenario. Um, the the second. Uh, issue would be that they could have a transfer embargo. Now, Sheffield Wednesday have had transfer embargoes before. Okay. Um, so this this makes life tougher for the manager. Right. Um, you know, he's got to work with the existing squad. You, you sign players, they've not turned out to be as good as you thought they are. You've got long-term yeah. injuries. You know, um, and, and under the terms of, of the transfer embargoes, it's normally um, and this, this is where we, we're going to get, be getting our violins out. If you do sign a new player in the EFL, you can't pay him more than £600,000 a year. <laughs> Right. Yeah, fan fans' sympathy, I think, is yeah, yeah. Just, well, just gone out who, that door. You can't work. Who can work with those? Well, parameters? exactly. Wow, yeah. Um yeah. But the average wage in, in the in the in the championship is considerably higher than that. Is it? Yeah, it's around about seventeen grand a week. So that's what eight in the championship. In the championship. Wow. This episode of the Price of Football is brought to you by the AI-powered workspace Notion. What if you had access to tomorrow's tools today in Notion? You do. It's the AI-powered workspace where any team can turn ideas into action. My career is sort of a bit like being a butterfly, and I'm always jumping from project to project. So therefore, Notion helps me from summarising meetings notes and automatically generating action items to getting answers to any question in seconds. If you can think it, you can make it. And Notion is for everyone. Whether you're a Fortune 500 company or a freelance football finance lecturer. You can try Notion for free when you go to notion.com slash price of football. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com slash price of football, and start turning ideas 
into action. That's notion.com slash price of football. Hi, I'm Steve Lamack, and every week I'm joined by Music Allies Head of Insights, Stuart Dredge, on The Price of Music, the weekly podcast all about the money behind the music industry. In each episode, we discuss the very latest goings-on in the music business and dig into the finances behind the big stories. So whether you're a music lover who just wants to know more about what really goes on in the industry, or you're an aspiring musician, manager or label owner who wants some inside knowledge on how Spotify's financial model really works, or what the future holds for independent live music venues, this is a show for you. Subscribe to The Price of Music in your podcast app now. See you soon. Okay. Um, so, so that will be the second scenario. Sheffield Wednesday have have been through that before. Not ideal, but that's yeah. That's something clubs, quite a few clubs in 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 that division have had to deal with. Um, third scenario, and I think the one which they fear the most, because yes. they've had a, they've had a good start to the season, would be a points deduction. Now we saw Birmingham City last season have a points deduction, and, and the good thing about that was, it, I think it was a, a forty-six page judgment. If you go through the small print. Which, which I do, which, which we know establishes it's, I have no life. Um, they set out. Well, to be fair, your life is checking small, but that is what you do for a living, pretty much. So, to be fair, and you teach other people to do it, so it's a. It'd be more amazing if I was to be checking the small print, which is again something I probably should have been doing in the past. But so, so if if, if you go through the small print, we now know exactly what the tariff is, how much loss to how many points. That's, oh, so it, there is a tariff then. There is. So it's not the EFL. It's not randomly decided depending well, on the severity of the case. Well, there is a tariff, and then in the small print to the small print, they say we have two things. We have one thing is called aggravating factors. If you have deliberately been, yeah. tried to yeah. mislead us. We're going to take a, a stronger stance, yeah. and then there are mitigating factors. And this is what happened with Birmingham. Birmingham was supposed to have, I think, a, a, an extra point deducted, but they had, they had a mitigating factor point uh, given back to them. If you have done something good, and Birmingham actually reported themselves to the EFL. Oh, okay. oh, right. Um, okay. When they realised we've done the sums, we've gone out and signed a player, even though you told us not to sign this player. Right. Um, but they did report themselves, and then, and therefore the 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 judgment, the committee, who uh, I think it's you know senior barrister and, and uh, you know, people of that nature, you know, pretty pretty learned dudes, but not football people, just independent. Yeah, right. yeah. Would, would the would the EFL worry, for example, that Birmingham will be looking at the points deduction, if any, for Sheffield Wednesday, and then saying, well, hang on a second, you should be we our case was was not as bad as that, and they haven't been deducted as many points. Was that an issue as well? Then I, I think so. I mean, because you know, what about her is is part of being a football fan and part of being oh, yeah, within, within the football full, full yeah, stop. Yes, yes. Um, so if if you were a Birmingham fan, you I think you would feel fairly aggrieved. Um, I think if you were a fan of Middlesbrough, Steve Gibson, the the Middlesbrough owner, he has been very vocal on this particular issue. And I think Tony Pulis, when he was the manager, Tony Pulis kept used to keep on going on about it. So on it, the issue in general, or about Sheffield Wednesday, on on the issue of the stadium sales and clubs <laughs> deliberately. Right, trying to right. to generate profits and the, generating profits from stadium sales is within the rules. Right. It's within it's within the EFL rules. It's not within the UEFA FFP rules. What's your instinct as to what will happen with Sheffield Wednesday? Um, the EFL have got a new sheriff in town called Rick Parry. Uh, oh, the Rick Parry, the Rick Parry. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, now 
Rick uh, used to be head of the Premier League. Yeah. He used to be the chief executive of of Liverpool. Rick sixty four. Yeah, you know, the reason why he's taking he, he doesn't need the money. He's, 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 he's a smart guy. He's a successful guy. Why has he come into the EFL? I think it's because he feels that it needs sorting, and he's got the experience to bring to it. Um, so we've got a new sheriff in town who who wants to be to ensure that the rules are being applied appropriately. Um, just after our last podcast, um, the EFL advertised for somebody to go in and read the small print of all the clubs. This, this was actually in, on a link. I saw this on LinkedIn. So they're offering. Did you apply? Um, no, this is right up your street. This year. really, yeah. I've missed the podcast too much. Oh, oh, oh bless you. So, so okay. So somebody has now been appointed. So, to so read yeah, the small so, print so they're on. trying to recruit somebody um, to to literally to go in and check the small print. So it appears that the and would the, clubs have to comply with that? You, yes, yeah, yeah. It, it, it would look it, bad if you didn't. Presumably, if, if, you, if you if you don't hand across your accounts for FFP, but I think that's an aggregating factor. Yeah, that, that, so. Um, so what what will be the next step? You know, will the clubs take a look at the rules and say stadium sales shouldn't be allowed for FFP? Or will they say, well, hold on, effectively, Villa, Derby, Reading, Sheffield Wednesday, they've all had the benefit of doing this from a financial point of view. So if I am Borough, if, if, I, am, uh, if I am Queen's Park Rangers or another club in, in the championship, surely I should be allowed to do that as well. So we don't know what the reaction of club right. owners is okay. going to be. But... My concern is Sheffield Wednesday do not own Hillsborough anymore. Now, Mr. Chancery, he now owes £60 million to the football club. What happens if he goes bust? Oh, right, of course. So, so, yeah, there are are potential ramifications. And fans will say, well, that's not going to be the case. We'll rewind 15 months to Aston Villa's situation where Dr. Tony, who had been who had been coming across from Hong Kong with suitcases of cash to pay the wages. I mean, yeah, the, the, the Aston Villa story was absolutely crazy. Yes. And when he ran out of cash, that's when things fell apart. You, you know, Having rich benefactors is great, but sometimes they don't turn out to be quite as rich, well, rich I, as they claim to be. Well, I suppose as well, logically, if, if Mr Chancellor now owes £60 million, that makes it more likely that he's going to struggle for money anyway, doesn't it? Now, Bernadette Coates, I can only apologise, Bernadette, because you asked us this question a long time ago. Supporters Trust. Now, we touched on it last week a little bit with, with Partick Fistle, and you, you explained that in Scotland, because most of the clubs, financially, scale-wise, aren't Celtic and Rangers, there is more scope for supporters to be involved. Bernadette's a, an Exeter fan, and she has been since moving to the city, and she moved at the time when Exeter had fallen out of the, the triangle, the league, the pyramid, fallen out of the league, were in serious trouble and football fans stepped in supporters trust save the club and it's basically what she because to me the idea of every football club being run by supporters trust seems to be right or at least even the German model when it's like 51% of the club is owned by the fans but are, are there downsides to supporters trust is it is it just a potentially good thing or can it go as wrong as any other financial model um, there, there are good bits and bad bits about it. If you take a look at some of the clubs, so so Portsmouth, uh, P- Portsmouth were were treated terribly um, by a succession of owners who yes. just saw them as an opportunity to to do a pass the pass or make a quick buck, yeah. sell on. Um, taken over the supporters' trust, they subsequently they've sold out to Michael Eisner, who used to be chief executive Disney. of Disney. Yep. 
Um, if you take a look at Wickham Wanderers, Wickham Wanderers were, were a fan-owned club. They've just been acquired by by two American guys. So, so why? What are the positives? What are the negatives? The, the good thing is that as a supporters trust, what you can do is that you can do the right things for the right reasons, uh, in the sense that. You want it to be part of the community. Um, you, If you want to have a policy of recruiting players locally, if you say that we think that, that wages are too high, you can, you can, you can set a, a wage cap and, and stick to that. Um, the downside is the people in the supporters' trust are good people in the main. Whether they are good business people yeah. is another matter. And it's not it doesn't mean that they're bad business people. It could be that they are inexperienced. And you get people involved who... who the reason why they want to get involved is well-meaning, sort of, but it's because oh, well, I've always wanted a, a green and blue striped away kit, and if I get involved, it's my opportunity to do things of this nature. Yeah. Yeah. If, if you look at any uh, small club or society, it tends to be run by a dedicated number of small people who are incredibly motivated. Initially, when when a supporters' trust is set up, there will be dozens and dozens of people involved, and you probably know from your personal experience, within six months you're down to a hardcore of four or five, and you're doing 99% of the work. Well, you mentioned elites earlier in terms of fans. I've been involved in several supporters' trusts and other clubs where it's quite it becomes quite plain that some of them very much enjoy the. The cachet, shall we say, of being, you know, I'm, I'm not just a supporter, I'm a member of the Sports Trust Board. So there's an element of, of, of that. I'm talking about UAFC Wimbledon in the early days, which, well, that's understandable, that's that's human nature. But when you talk about Supporters Trust selling to Eisner, for example, or the Wickham, how many supporters have to be, have to, be uh, to approve that? I mean, so, so Supporters Trust will set up a board. Because we all know from, from our own experience of football clubs, you meet some amazingly skillful, you know, judges, lawyers, all sorts of people, but as you say, not necessarily businessmen. But So once the decision to sell Wickham Wanderers to two Americans is made by how many supporters? Is it? They had, they had to get 75% approval, and they did. So, right, so that, right. that seems quite a reasonable. And to be fair to these two American guys, they came to the club, they made a presentation... They were silver-tongued. I mean, they they were very, very slick. I've, I've spoken to some of the people from Wickham on both sides. You right. know, some people who are still of caution. You know, what are, what are their motivations here? Um, why are you selling out? Well, ultimately, if you've got a bunch of well-meaning people, they're not necessarily wealthy, well-meaning people who are running football clubs. And to get to the next level, whatever you mean by the next level, so. If if you take over a club in the National League and your ambition is to get to League Two and no further, the Supporters Trust will work absolutely superbly. Okay. Okay. If you want to get to the Championship, where the average losses in the Championship are £20 million a year, yeah. well, there's six of us. Yeah. I'm a bus conductor. Yeah. I work for the council. Yeah. We haven't got we haven't got that type of money, and then along yeah. But I've heard of somebody from America, somebody from Thailand, somebody from what? China who has got a big checkbook, and if you don't sell out to those people, you're going to people going well. Hold on, you know we yeah we would you know Joseph Schmuckelberger the third yeah you know from Texas, and he's saying he wants to buy our club, and you're and you're just keeping it because you want to be on the committee and you want to have the other directors come to the director's box and, and you want to choose next way next year's away kit.
Yeah. And then all of a sudden, you're getting the abuse. And we know we live in a society now that abuse isn't just at matches. It's on social media. Yes, it's to course. your kids yeah, and so on. We're living in a very different society. Well, one last question on this before we move on. And we do have to time-wise, unfortunately. Uh, I'd be quite pleased if Joseph Schmuckleberger III was to take over. But say, for example, Joseph Schmuckleberger III goes to Wickham and he offers them £20 million. Where does that money go? Because to be a member of the Supporters' Trust, you've paid 10 quid essentially. Yeah. So... Well, that doesn't mean that the members of the Sports Trust are now getting a massive windfall, does it? No. What I think what would happen under those circumstances, and you have to be very careful here because you look see what happened at Swansea, where, where Swansea effectively had a, a supporters' trust, and some of the senior guys there walked away with a lot of money when, when Swansea were acquired by right. two Americans in 2012, 2013, yeah. whenever it was. Um You've got to look at the constitution. Ideally, any money should go into the club's bank account and should be used for infrastructure, recruitment, wages, local community schemes, yeah, and so okay. on. But, the, but if, if the if the if the constitution isn't written the right way, somebody's got opportunity to make money. But it's strange because those constitutions are written up at a time of crisis, aren't they? At short notice, yeah. when it, you, your club may not exist, so you're not always necessarily thinking ahead. To put that through. Now, Bernadette, it's, it's a good week for Bernadette Coates because as we took so long to answer her first question, I thought it was only fair to answer another of Bernadette's right. questions. And I apologise to all of you who have sent in questions, most of which are about your Blackpool nightclub exploits. I have to be perfectly yes. honest. Uh, but Bernadette Coates, this is um, EPPP, which used to be youth development, basically. So this is now Elite Player Performance Plan. Uh, Bernadette articulates something, an instinct that a lot of us have, which is and you'll explain what it is, but it seems somehow that it's not good for lower league clubs, that it's skewed towards the Premier League clubs, the EPPP. EPPP works as follows. Under the old rules in terms of academies, there was the famous 90-minute rule, so that a club could not recruit a young person if they lived further than 90 minutes away from the training centre. And everybody accepted that. And that was good, because if you were in Exeter, that meant... But you had you had all of the local kids yeah. coming to the Exeter Centre of Excellence. Yeah, there was always some dispute about whether Dublin counted as ninety minutes away from. There was, there was, yeah, there yeah. were because yeah. there, there was arguments about. Oh the, yeah, the, the, the circle around Liverpool and Manchester was argued over quite extensively, wasn't it? And silver tongue lawyers were involved at the, the end. You, as, you as, amaze as, me, <laughs> yeah. my mates. Yeah. Um, the the Premier League then went to the EFL and they said. Every year, we are giving you money in what is referred to as solidarity payments. All right. Sounds good. And that's good. Yeah. And in, in, the, uh, in the championship, it was around about two and a half million. Um, in, in League One and League Two, we're talking hundreds of thousands. So, yeah, so that's good. Um, we, don't, we don't have to give you that money. <laughs> but here's, here's a suggestion. We will put it in writing. We will put it into a contract that we will guarantee you a percentage of the domestic TV monies every oh, year right. if you agree to EPPP. And the way that EPP works as follows. First of all, the 90-minute rule is gone. Yeah. Secondly, um, and... Uh, you, you've, you've mentioned John Bostock in, in the past, yes, who was, who was a best, very, very talented the, young player. The, the, who the was, best teenager I've ever seen in a palace, without a doubt. Yeah. Um, we, we'll, we will give you a fixed amount for a young player. Now, that's £3,000 
if they are 10 years old per if season. If they're 10? If they're 10. They're buying 10-year-olds? They can buy 10. Well, they can't... They, well, it, or, sorry, sorry, no, not, they can't buy 10. If, if he's been in your academy oh, since 10. So we signed him at 16. And, and, oh, I see. For and, got, and what they've yeah. done, they've said, we're going to have four tiers of academy. So you've got category one, two, three, and four. Yes. And you will, be, know, you will yeah. be inspected. Yeah. You will be categorised. And you've got to be able to offer the, the following in order to be, go up from one category to the next. So if you are a, a tier four, if you've been uh, for a club for for five or six years you start off if they're in if they started off at a year when they're 10 years old you get three thousand pounds for that year three thousand pounds when they're 11 then it goes up to four and a half thousand so therefore everybody knows how much money the, the premier league club is going to have to pay compared to some of the transfer fees for 16 year olds prior to epp these these sums of money were quite low yeah so from so the good news for the lower league clubs is that they are now guaranteed these solidarity payments from the Premier League. The bad news is if you're at Accrington, if you're at Exeter, if you are a, you know, another you know, Leighton Orient, a, a Premier League club can come in and see one of your young players and say, well, you've been at the academy. Um, yeah, we, we can't sign you until you're 16, but at the age of 16, we can offer you a contract and we know it's going to cost us you know, fifty grand, eighty grand. Right. And in in a, in a an age where sixteen and seventeen year olds potentially can be going for tens and tens of millions, yeah. you've only got to look at you know some of some of the fantastic youth players coming through. It does mean that the the uh, the Premier League teams, you know, their part of the deal is we can now cherry pick your best players yeah, so they, and pay you a relative pittance. Those blackmailed lower league clubs essentially. You, they, you, you get this money if you agree to yeah, not it, have it, this it, money. Essentially, it, that's right. It's a trade-off. Well, so this does this imply then that these rules are strictly adhered to? So take a case where Accrington, as you've mentioned, have got a really good fourteen-year-old, and United have noticed, and Liverpool have noticed, and Everton have noticed. Are are there are there yeah you know, shady? Are our parents still being spoken to? Are people being offered? Are there ways around this, or do United, Liverpool, and Everton? Does that does Accrington then decide which of those clubs will pay them twelve thousand pounds for their biggest asset? Or no, no, that that would be the choice of the. But because he's not a professional footballer, so therefore he's not signed a professional contract right. with, with the club itself. He's he's only on on junior terms. Um, that that young individual would then, at the age of sixteen, have the choice of going uh, wherever he he, he wanted right. to so, go. So the, the the old days, the John Bostock days of. of People being offered cars, parents being offered houses—that that's that's gone, has it? That would be against the rules. So it hasn't gone then. That's, you could tell by the way you, you waited to ask the, answer the question. That that would that yeah that there are rules. Um, yeah, but we, if, we we know we're only into pod eight nine whatever it is, and we know already how many rules are flouted out there. Um, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm I'm hoping to speak to a parent of a club. Uh, of, of a young young player at a club uh, soon, really, and uh, uh, we'll we'll have that on the pod. I I would that would be fantastic. That would be really good. Yeah. Oh, that's that's. Uh, how do you get to know? You you just did this great web of intrigue. You know. Well, the, the 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 price of football we mail account is we're we're getting some amazing um, people phoning us up to say we like a we like the show, which is fantastic. Yeah, we all yeah. say thank you very much. But b um, 
did you know this? So I've, I've been contacted by, by a parent you, of a club, uh, or sorry, a parent what, of a player. I, well, I, I really would be interested to hear that, and, and there will be strict anonymity, I, I yeah, imagine. But you, you are, you're a force for good in the football world, aren't you? Um, I'm just a force for small print. <laughs> Let me finish. I want to finish with one final question. This is a question we had on Twitter from uh, Body's Buddy. Uh, and it's I don't not normally at home to rugby, but it, it is Jermaine. You know the Saracens are in a lot of trouble for smashing the rugby wage cap. It's, so basically, Buddy's Buddy's question is about would a salary cap work in in football? And my guess is that football clubs in the Premier League would simply not agree to any sort of salary cap. But is it something that we should be looking at signing up to? Um. um... I don't. I don't think it should work. Ultimately, you're talking about young working class men who are being offered huge sums of money. Um, I've got no issue with that. That there's not a salary cap in banking. There's not a salary cap in music. There's yeah. not a salary cap in 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 art. Um, so so why why is this envy against football players? Um, the clubs in the Premier League are not blackmailed into paying these wages. They, they do so willingly. Um, they can usually sell the player on for a huge sum of money, as, yeah. as we've seen over over, over many summers. Um, so I don't think it would work. If you look to see what's happened in rugby, um, there's a salary cap in rugby. Initially, the first thing that happened was that players started going to France. Right. So if there's a salary cap in English football... Players would just go onto the continent if, if they could be played as money elsewhere. What was the logic behind the salary cap in rugby? Was it to be more competitive? Like in, in the NFL, as we know, bizarrely for a very capitalist country, is a very equal uh, business. I mean, they, they make sure that all clubs are competitive. They all get a share of the merchandise. The worst teams get the first pick of the best players and so on. So was that the idea in rugby? Um, that, that was partly it. It was also that rugby clubs... The TV, the TV rights for rugby are pretty paltry compared to football. Clubs were losing an absolute fortune, oh, right, okay. and, and club owners, as as we know, all leagues are controlled by club owners. Yes. they got together and said, "We can't afford to do this. Oh, okay, let's right. have a salary cap. Right. Let's get stop this craziness." Because agents are playing players off, you know, from one club to another. Yeah, and they said that's going to work, and then all the players disappeared to France. Well, it's interesting you say that about the. the I, Players' wages. Why should why should players' wages be bad? Because I think, as we established when we had our agent friend on, most football fans it's, it's the the agent they blame, not the player. No, most football fans don't begrudge players. There are people of my dad's generation, for example, who simply can't get their head around the actual figure. But most people go, yeah, fair enough. If I could play football that well, I'd ask for that sort of money. Robbie Williams asked for that sort of money to sing songs. Graham Norton gets a lot of money for doing that, so why not? So there isn't, there isn't that resentment. It seems to be more outside football that people look at the players' wages and go. And I think the class issue, and again, this is for another pod, I think the class issue is, is absolutely right. I think it is because people think, how are these young working-class kids earning that sort of money? Well, well that's right. I mean, the, the very fact that when we talk about footballers' wages... We talk about them in terms of how much per week. Well, that's an old blue collar way. Yeah, whereas, whereas, whereas somebody such as myself would say, "Well, my annual salary is because yeah. I'm a white collar worker." Yeah, it's very interesting. Um, so, you know, it, and it's it's quite insidious that that has become so ground within with us. Um, because if you talk to somebody about the NFL, they will say he's on so much per year, and and the NFL is amazing, trans- wow, amazingly yeah, transparent yeah, yeah. in in terms of of players' wages. But with football, it's all to do, you know, you're working class and it's you do not deserve this because you are from a working class background. That's really interesting. We will do a class-based pod 
within the next few weeks. We'll both, we'll both get it off our chest and we'll get it off our shoulders, which is where the big problem is. Um, thank you again, Kieran. Uh, the agenda I scribble on my piece of paper, we went nowhere near that pretty much. We just go <laughs> off where you take us, but it's always worth going. Uh, Price of Football uh, is Adapted Production. It's produced by Guy Kilty and it's recorded at Soho Radio. Um, thank you for listening and we'll see you next week. Thank you. The Price of Football. Bye, son, for the fall.